Think of this chapter today under the title, Not Making It Difficult. Becoming a Christian and then living as a Christian, it isn't easy. And the main reason why it isn't easy is there are three great enemies that we face. The sin that's within us, which still battles against the desires of God in our lives. There is a devil who is around us and seeking to tempt us and trip us up. And then there is the hostile world that we have to live in. So sin, the devil, and the world, the three enemies that we face. And that's what makes it so difficult to become a Christian and to live as a Christian. But in becoming a Christian, in living as a Christian, the influence and help of other Christians is, is very important. The Bible teaches that we are to encourage and spur each other on, particularly as we live in this hostile world. And all true Christians will have a desire to see people to come to Christ and the people see them go on with Christ. But if we're going to help others in this, we need great wisdom and grace from above. Without heavenly grace and wisdom, we can be in a real danger of hindering people and they're coming to Christ, they're going on with Christ. And so, we're thinking today of this very important subject about not making it difficult for others. Now, first of all, we see in this chapter the vital issue in verses 1 to 5. The church in Antioch was a church that after its formation, it grew and developed very quickly. So, that it became the first recorded missionary sending church when it sent out Paul and Barnabas. But we can always be certain that a fruitful church will gain the attention of the devil who will seek to hinder and to divide. And that's what we see in verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, this was an absolutely vital issue. It was not a secondary, it was not a side, it was not a trivial matter at all. Because what was at stake here was the gospel and the whole question of how someone could be saved. And there's nothing more important for a church, there's nothing more important for any of us than we are clear about how someone can be right with God. Now, the message of Paul and Barnabas to the people in Antioch, it had been, you're saved through Christ alone. They rightly taught that you're right with God through resting on the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary alone. It is believing that when Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished, He meant it, that He had paid the, paid the price in full. He had done it all, and we trust in Him alone. I love the wee story about a tent mission which had finished, and a man, when the, the man who had run the mission was busy getting the tent and getting it cleared up, and he came to me, he says, he says, what must I do to be saved to the man? The man says, you're too late. And the fellow says, are you saying because the mission is now over, I can't be saved? And he says, no, no, no. I'm saying it's too late for you to do anything. Jesus has done it all. 
And so the, the message is, you don't do anything. You trust in what Jesus has done. Now, what was happening here was that these men who had come from Jerusalem were adding to the message of Christ alone. They weren't teaching Christ alone, but rather they were teaching Christ plus. Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus observing the law. And anyone who, in regards to salvation, adds a plus to Jesus is seriously distorting the message of the gospel. Uh, let's think of a few ways in which this can be added today. And this is important because this muddies the water and stops people from being clear about salvation. It confuses people. First of all, let me mention Roman Catholicism. Sadly, Roman Catholic teaching is not Christ alone, but Christ plus baptism to wash away your original sin. Christ plus confession to a priest. Christ plus penance. Christ plus the Mass. Christ plus purgatory to have you cleansed. And the cry of the Reformation in response to that was that you're saved through Christ alone. It is grace alone, received through faith alone. That word alone is crucial. It's never Christ plus, it's Christ alone. It's never grace plus, it's grace alone. It's never faith plus, it's faith alone. But let's think of other ways that can be distorted. Liberal Protestantism is the next way, which indeed affects many even within our Presbyterian church. It's Christ plus doing your best. Many Presbyterians think, if I live a good life, I don't do anyone any harm. If I try my best, seek to be a good person, go to church, have a bit of religion, that'll be, hopefully I'll be all right. But that is Christ plus your works. Christ plus you doing your best. It's wrong. You have to come to the point that there's nothing I can do. It's Jesus who does it all. I have to trust not 99% in Jesus and 1% in me. I have to trust 100% on what He has done on the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Another danger is, I'll call it legalistic Protestantism. And I'm thinking here of people who have become Christians, who have trusted in Jesus, and they're not getting people coming in saying they have to be circumcised to be saved, a good Christian. I've seen this happen. There's people, and I've even seen it happen since I came to Brookside in this area. People have come to trust in Jesus. Then people say, oh, you can't be a real Christian if you don't read the right version of the Bible. And so it becomes Christ plus the King James Bible. Uh, you know, I think the King James Bible is a tremendous translation, and if you read it, read it more and more. I'd never stop anyone reading an accent translation like that. But your salvation does not depend on your translation use. Or another one in legalistic Protestantism is it's Christ plus maybe certain rules about your quiet time. William Still, who I often quote, who ministered in Aberdeen, and Aberdeen being a university city, 
he had many students who came to his church. But what he found sometimes with students was that salvation was Christ plus a very rigorous quiet time. Spending hours in a quiet time. Now, you can spend hours. It's good to spend hours in your quiet time. But they were thinking that they couldn't be good Christians. They weren't right with God unless they spent acts, minutes, reading God's Word and praying. And what had happened is they had become legalistic. They were having a salvation based on what they do. William Still actually wrote a wee book in response to that called The World of Grace. When people come to me and, and ask me, what do I do now when I've become a Christian? I remember one person, and I said to them, do nothing. And they looked at me. It wasn't what they were expecting. I said, read your Bible and pray, and be among God's people, and God will guide you. It's not about certain rules. It makes you right. The final plus here is, charismatic Protestantism. People who will say, after you've trusted in Jesus to be a proper Christian, even to be a real Christian, you need the baptism of the Spirit. Or sometimes it's to say that a second blessing to be a real Christian. I remember, and these are real problems, because it's like these people from, who say they're from James who caused the problems these young Christians in Antioch. I've seen it happen and happen in this area. I remember when I was in Wellington Street, there was a young girl who came to faith. I remember being followed in a discipleship class that she was going through. And her sister went to a fellowship in the Balamine area. And this fellowship taught that you're not saved. You're not a true Christian unless you speak in tongues. And they were adding to the Bible. They were adding to Christ alone. It was Christ plus something else. Paul and Barnabas, it's, I love that wee verse here. It says, had no small dissension and debate. In other words, they had a big row. They weren't going to give in. They were going to defend the principle, people are saved through Christ alone. Not Christ plus anything. It's through trusting in Jesus alone and His finished work on the cross of Calvary. Is that we question? I think Evangelism Explosion uses it. If you were to die tonight and God was to ask you, why should He let you into heaven, what would you say? What would your answer be? I hope you're not saying... I have done this or I have done that. I hope your answer is Christ alone. What He has done on the cross, that is my only hope. So that is the vital, the vital issue that rose. And then we have the crucial debate in verses 6 to 18. And this debate was absolutely vital. If it had not gone the right way, the church's understanding of the gospel would have moved from the truth. This reminds us of the importance of praying for the gathering of church leaders, for Kirk sessions, for presbytery, for our general assembly. We need to pray and probably pray more for when these groups gather because the decisions they take can really help or hinder 
the gospel. Now, in this debate, there would be three main parties who would contribute positively to the discussion. There would be Peter, and then Paul and Barnabas together, and then finally James, the brother of Jesus. We're going to look at what they're saying here. First of all, we have from Peter the focus on the Spirit in verses 7 to 11. And he recounts that groundbreaking visit that he had to Cornelius. And before that, he would not have gone, or the other apostles would not have gone into the home of a Gentile. In verse 8, it says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that's Cornelius and his family, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter's argument here is very simple. These people received the Holy Spirit, and therefore they received salvation, not by being circumcised, not by keeping the law of Moses, but as they simply responded to the gospel message in faith. Salvation did not require these other things. And here we see clearly how salvation happens. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross, first of all, and then about what Jesus does in our heart when we're born again, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon us and changes us and causes us to trust in Jesus. A Christian is not primarily someone who does this, that, or the other thing. A Christian is someone who has had something happen to them. They have received salvation as a gift when through the power of the Spirit, they have been born again. Someone becomes a Christian not by their works, but by the work of Christ on the cross, which then is applied to their hearts through the work of the Spirit. Has this happened to you? Has the Spirit of God changed you? Has the Spirit of God caused you to come and to hate your sin and to trust in Jesus alone as your Savior. And if you are a Christian, is the Spirit of God still real in your life? Is He prompting you? Is He giving you a hunger for God's Word? Is He leading you on with Christ? Is He creating that ongoing desire for prayer and worship within you? Paul says that indeed living the, Christ, the Christian life, it's life in the Spirit. And Peter's conclusion in verse 10 was, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Talking about all the ceremonial law. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, this yoke, the, the burden of keeping all that ceremonial law, plus possibly many other rules that the Jews had added to it, he says, listen, we haven't been able to do that. So why should we expect the Gentiles to do that? And in regard to salvation, we need to understand the purpose of the law of God. The purpose of the law of God is to expose our sin. It's to show us how we need to be saved. The law of God and keeping it will never cleanse us from sin. We're washed by Christ alone. And Peter's burden is not to do anything that would make it more difficult for people to come to know Jesus. He didn't want to do anything to make it more difficult for these people to go on in their relationship with Christ. And so we need to be careful that what we teach, how we live, 
our attitudes, our words, make it easier for people to come to Christ and to live for Christ. The way you conduct yourself in your school, the way you conduct yourself in your workplace, in your home, do you make it easier for people who know you're a Christian to come to Christ? Or do you make it more difficult? The way you conduct yourself among Christians in the home or within the church, the way you greet people, the way you talk to people, your countenance, your attitude, does it make people find it easier to live for Jesus? Then we have secondly here the focus on God's power in verse 12. Here we have Paul and Barnabas. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, these Gentiles who had never been circumcised, their coming to faith was an act of God. And this was clearly evidenced by the signs and wonders that was done among them through Paul and Barnabas. I'm sure Paul and Barnabas at this point related the story on the island of Cyprus, how Elymas, when he tried to stop Sergius Paulus, the governor, from coming to Christ, how he was blinded by a word from Paul, or the story of the crippled man at the gate of the city of Lystra, who was indeed healed, and then the priest of Zeus wants to come and offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. He would have shared those stories. And the key thing here is that these miracles, God moving in such a wonderful way, is showing that God was at work here, and these people coming to trust in Christ was a work of God. It didn't happen through them being circumcised. And this should be our great burden for our church, our community, our country, our world today, that God is wonderfully working. That's what we need above everything else. God at work among us. You know, as a church, we work hard. We, we try to do things the right way. We, we try to reach out with people. But the fruit comes. The blessing comes. Salvation comes only when God was at, is at work. And that's what, indeed, Paul and Barnabas are able to share. How God has been moving. The focus on God's power. And then thirdly, there's a focus on God's plan. Look there at verse 13. James comes on the picture. We read that after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited Gentiles and to take from them people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, this James, the brother of Jesus, uh, do you remember there's another James, James and John, two brothers? That other James had already been killed in, by Herod in Acts 12. Now, James here, the brother of Jesus, he speaks here. What he says is very important because remember the troublemakers who had gone to Antioch had said they'd come from him. But what he does here, he quotes from the prophet Amos, Amos chapter 9, to show that what is happening in the Gentiles coming to faith is part of God's revealed plan. And in verse 18, we read, or verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. 
Then verse 19, he says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He's echoing what Peter said earlier. We shouldn't make it more difficult here. But there's something very important about what James is doing here, which is a crucial principle for us. James was interpreting, understanding, explaining the experience of what was happening among the Gentiles in the light of Scripture. He was allowing the Word of God to help him understand what was happening in the experience of people. James was doing what Paul would later advocate writing to the Thessalonians, test everything, hold fast what is good. James did not let experience interpret Scripture, because if he did that, that would make experience the authority. No, he let Scripture be the authority and interpret the experience. Now, this is so relevant for today, because so often what happens in society today is that a person's experience, a person's story, that is the authority which you're not allowed to question. It's particularly true in the whole case of morality today. What is the standard that the world out there goes by? It's a person's story. It's the people's experience of love that matters. If two people love each other, whether it be two men, two women, or a man and a woman who are already married to someone else, love is love. And who are we to speak against a person's story, a person's experience? The experience is the authority. But that's the exact opposite of what James is doing here. He is saying the Word of God is the authority to guide us and to judge the experiences that people have. Who are we to question people's experience? Who are we to question people's experience of love today? Personally, we have no right to do that. But God the Creator... God, the all-wise and knowing God, the God who gives us every breath, every beat of our hearts, He has the right to question. And His Word has the right to say, your experience of love is right or your experience is wrong. So don't let your experience, and let me say this to our young people as you grow up, don't let your experience be the authority. Test everything in the light of Scripture. That's what James is doing here. He's letting Scripture guide them understanding what is happening in the world around. And that brings us to the wise conclusion in verses 9 or 19 to 21. Look at verse 19 there. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In coming to their conclusion, the apostles don't want to make things difficult for these new Gentile believers, but they're also very mindful not to do anything that would make it difficult for the current Jewish believers. They're being sensitive to everyone within the church. And this is 
equally important for us that we are sensitive to where people are at within the church, and as far as is possible, that we don't make it difficult for anyone. I don't know if you've ever been, remember the days, if you were young enough, you had a group of young people in a room, and there's so many young people in a room that you couldn't hardly see any space on the floor, and you have to go out to do something, and you have to step across all the bodies and try and get your way out of the room. And you're careful being aware of where people are at so you don't stamp on them, you don't indeed trod on them, you don't hurt them. You're being careful where you're setting your foot. And sometimes you're successful, sometimes you weren't. Now, this is what basically they are doing here. We don't want to put our big foot down on these new Gentile believers and make things too hard for them. But we don't want to put our big foot down on the Jewish believers as well. And so there are four things the apostles agreed here that the Gentile believers should abstain from. Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, eating animals that have been strangled, drinking or eating blood. Now, we can understand abstaining from sexual immorality. It was very obvious uh, that it's something had to be highlighted. It was a big problem in Greek society. Fifty years ago, the morality by and large in our society was based on the Bible, and that has gone. And it's going to be something we have to guard within the church, that we have to protect ourselves, that we're not to be involved in sexual immorality. Again, again, it comes and hunts the church. But there's no place for it in the church. We need to turn away and repent of that sin. But the reason for the other guidance about the food, look in verse 21, it's due to the sensitivities of the Jews and how it was widely known, the teaching of Moses in this area for quite a period of time. And it all comes back to the same point, being sensitive to others and not make it difficult. So, these Gentile believers who liked their black pudding out of love for their brothers and sisters in Christ who would be offended by it, they wouldn't take the black pudding. They wouldn't take the meat of an animal which had been strangled because that was against the Jewish sensitivities, and they wouldn't take food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Look there in what it says there in verse 30 about their response to this. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They didn't say, uh-uh, I like my black pudding. I stuff those Jewish believers. Uh, I can eat my black pudding. Uh, I don't care about them. No. The Jewish believers were sensitive to the Gentile believers, not to make it difficult for them. And the Gentile believers were sensitive to the Jewish believers, not to make it difficult for them also. And it just reminds us that the church is not to be a place where I say, it has to be my way or the highway. It's church is to be a place where I think, how do what I do, how the way I behave, how the way I express myself, how does that impact on other people? And I will not do anything that makes it more difficult for someone to come to Christ and to live for Christ. We need to pray. We need to pray because sometimes we impact others far more 
than we ever realize by our manner, our words, our attitudes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And Lord, we thank you that this chapter just emphasizes clearly the, the message of the gospel, how salvation is not by works, it's trusting in Christ alone. And we have to come and embrace Him and His finished work on the cross. And yet, Father, we also learn their great teaching about being sensitive to others. And Father, that we're not to be selfish and just think about what I want, but think about how we can support, encourage people on their journey to Christ and then on their journey with Christ. Father, give us that grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.